Picture this, you're juggling multiple prescriptions, patient consultations, and endless hours of administrative tasks, all while maintaining a happy work-life balance. It's chaotic, it's stressful, and it's downright exhausting. Or maybe you're a student who's overwhelmed by all your assignments, exams, OSCEs, whilst attending hours and hours of lectures and labs and maintaining an active social life. What if I told you there's a way to streamline your week and reclaim a sense of control over your time? I think I can kickstart that journey. I've created a free PDF guide, five steps to streamline your week and add five hours to your schedule. In this guide, you'll learn how to optimize your workflow, prioritize your tasks, and carve out precious time for self-care and personal pursuits. Click the link below to grab the guide now. I promise you, your future self will thank you for it. Hey, my name is Anisha Patel, and I'm obsessed with all things career development. Whether that's navigating through your professional journey, gaining more clarity, identifying your passions, or gaining the confidence to chase your dreams, I'm here to support you to craft a roadmap to success. I am a pharmacist turned entrepreneur who's transformed my passions into purpose. I've grown a podcast that has reached thousands of people across the globe. I'm building an online business and I've left my nine to five to chase my dreams and build a career that I love. I've walked this path of transformation myself and now I'm here to share insights, strategies and stories to help you carve out a career that you love career opportunities, personal development, challenges, growth, and building life skills are all things we discuss on this podcast. Whether you're sipping a cup of coffee, taking a walk, or driving in the car, be prepared to be inspired and motivated to step outside of your comfort zone. This is the Pharmacist Diaries podcast. Catherine, welcome to Pharmacist Diaries, first of all. Thank you very much for asking me. Absolutely. It's an yeah, well, thank you. Um, I am so pleased that actually someone had, it was Gillian Murray, a good friend of mine, who made the recommendation to ask you to come onto the podcast. She's a good friend of mine as well, actually. Excellent. Fun so she'll be very, very happy to, to, to see us having a conversation. She'll be tuning into this episode. So I know I'll have one viewer for sure. But um, <laughs> That's all you need. I'll, yeah, that's all you need. But as... Um, you know, as I've looked at your LinkedIn profile, you've obviously sent me information about yourself and your journey. You've got an incredible amount of experience and you are an inspiration for sure in the pharmacy profession. So I feel like this is an honor for me to actually get an opportunity to interview you and hear all about your pharmacy journey, as well as all the details within the critical care space. Um, so I guess let's kickstart the episode by asking you why you decided to become a pharmacist in the first place. So that's a nice question to start, isn't it? So I guess at school, I quite like chemistry and then I quite like biology and I quite like biochemistry. And um, I think my mother had studied chemistry and she'd gone into teaching. Uh, she'd gone to university and she said, choose a vocation, you know, choose something you can go back to. And so I chose pharmacy. Um, and I left school at 17, actually, and went to university to study pharmacy in Aberdeen, which was um, about three hours away from where I lived in Stirling. And never looked back. Well, something like that. As a pharmacist, I know firsthand how challenging it can be to maintain our health and well-being whilst caring for others. 
I am a true believer of making the time to look after my physical, mental and emotional health and I love the idea of using natural supplements to support me on this journey. That's why I was so excited to find The Naked Pharmacy. Their products are 100% plant-based and naturally sourced, 100% biodegradable, and it feels really safe to know that they are formulated, tested, and manufactured to the same standard as a pharmaceutical product. However, the most important fact to share is that their CEO and founder, Kevin Levers, is a pharmacist with over 35 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. I love that as a community, we can support our pharmacy colleague every time that we purchase a product. As a Pharmacist Diaries listener, you get an exclusive 20% discount off all Naked Pharmacy products using the code PD20. Just visit www.thenakedpharmacy.com and treat yourself to something new. Amazing. So during your university years, what was uh, your experience in terms of what you enjoyed? What were your passions and where did you think your pharmacy journey was going to go back then? No, gosh, that's a good question. So I think I, um, I think I joined it a bit of a rebel. You know, I wasn't that. I, I, I was sort of thinking I, I should study something more, but I wasn't a really diligent student. But I think by the end, I really loved it. I loved the science, particularly, and the things that really sparked me were. So don't forget, in those days, because it was quite some time ago, a lot of pharmacy was science. There was a lot of pharmaceutical chemistry, which was pretty heavy. It was, you know, interesting. It was heavy. But we had about three or four ward rounds. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Through the whole four years. But they were the things that really sparked me. Going to see patients, definitely. And going to, um, you know, join the multidisciplinary team. I loved that. And I thought, and this was just the sort of, it wasn't the start of clinical pharmacy, not quite that old, but it was in the early days. And I thought, yeah, I want to be a clinical pharmacist. That's it. I want to see these patients. I want to, you know, be part of the multidisciplinary team. That was very strong. Amazing, yeah. I I definitely had a very similar experience in terms of my journey within pharmacy. I was really intrigued by industry, but I didn't quite think I had the discipline for it. And I also loved so much being in front of the patient. Yes. And yeah. the patient education aspect was a big part of my joy. And working in a community pharmacy throughout university helped me to understand how much I enjoyed the community side of building rapport with patients, helping them in their health journey, helping to solve a problem. And I just enjoyed the conversation and it helps me to realize why I do this podcast as well today, because it's all about co conversation and connection and network and making yeah. friendships. And it's, you know, in, instead of with patients, I'm with pharmacists, but those um, skills and the, the passion um, is still the same. And that definitely shone through during my degree. Um, and I'm always saying to students when I'm teaching now is that Whilst you're in university, try to hone in on those areas where you feel lit up by yes, the person who's teaching you or the content that you're learning or when you're studying, you can't stop reading or you're in the lab and you never want to leave. You know, what is it that brings you joy? Because that will help to navigate where you go in your pharmacy career, because a lot of students now struggle with the amount of choice that we have and the 
opportunities yes, that are available. Yes, I, I can imagine that. I mean, I've, certainly there wasn't, I, I can't complain, I think I've had a wonderful career, but, I, you know, there certainly wasn't the same opportunities. There wasn't GP uh, pharmacy practice, which I think would have appealed. Um, and there was, you know, the community setting was really quite different. But I think, I really think all of these areas, I've always thought that it's, it's what you make of it. You know, it can be as good as bad as you want it to be. And um, yeah, but the patient, the connection with patients and actually being part of a team, the multidisciplinary team I've always really enjoyed, you know, muscling in and getting your voice heard, uh, you know, conveying what you think is best for your patient is always great, actually. I really do love that. Yeah. I love it, actually. Absolutely. Advocating for the patient that, and also like you, it's a really good learning opportunity when you're working in a multidisciplinary environment, especially in the early days. As a band six pharmacist, when I did my residency, it was such a privilege to be part of the MDT and get your opinion across and get your voice heard. But also when you're on those ward rounds, you learn so much from the doctors, the nurses, the physiotherapists that you're listening to in terms of the yeah. patient journey and how they support. And it makes you such a, um, you know, better practitioner as a pharmacist. Oh, it definitely does. Definitely does. And there's nothing, you know, it's really satisfying helping patients. You know, whether it's just a just thing like helping them get the discharge uh, medication a bit quicker or sorting out something for them or just, you know, I do a lot of work weaning sedatives and opioids after long term talking to the patient and their family about their, you know, long-term pain and things. I, yeah, I do. I like all that. I love all that. Amazing. So I guess that's helped me to understand where your interest sparked from. Yes. And when you qualified as a pharmacist, what was the start of your journey like for you? So I qualified as a pharmacist. Uh, I think I had two interviews that I really remember. There was one at Guy's and there was one at St. Thomas's. Now, don't forget, I came from Aberdeen, which is like, uh, Gotham City in the north, grey, you know, beautiful granite city, but completely different. And I came down to St Thomas's, which you've worked at for many years, and I walked over Westminster Bridge and I just thought, this is where I'm going to work. I want to work here. I just fell in love. I fell in love with the setting. I loved London. And I went in and actually my, it's a terrible day. My pre-registration interview was in the CD room. <laughs> And then um, one of them, I think I just had a cigarette. I mean, that's that's how long ago people still smoked in pharmacy. But it was just such a wonderful setting. I loved it. And then uh, I went over to the interview guys, and, and that was great as well. I loved guys, but they were a bit more formal at guys. You know, they asked me things. I remember, like, what's the difference between clinical pharmacy and ward pharmacy? And I was like, well, I don't know. I think you might tell me that. I hope so. Anyway, very lucky I got the job at St. Thomas's. Uh, it wasn't even guys in St. Thomas's in those days. And well, I never looked back. Well, you always have ups and downs in your journey, didn't you? But I, I loved working there. Actually, I loved working in central London. At that time, it was so different from everything I'd experienced before. You know, my background was very Scottish. And you come down to London, I loved the anonymity, I loved this sort of cultural diversity. And being part of this really big team in a big London teaching hospital was really great fun. Very privileged to be there, particularly in the early Absolutely. days. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, there is so much opportunity when you go into a big teaching hospital. I went to Oxford and absolutely loved the the big site 
the opportunities, the different ward specialties and the team within the pharmacy department was huge, even, you know, 10 years ago. Such a, a massive team of pharmacists, technicians, you know, procurement, management, IT, all of it. You, you know, it's a really great opportunity for you to start your career and, and understand where you fit in yes. to the, the bigger network. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, but but, you, you but also it's a really good opportunity for you to see all the different specialties when you go to these huge teaching hospitals because they are a specialist centre for so many different types of conditions and that allows you an opportunity to learn about those clinical conditions in so much more depth than you would in a potentially smaller hospital or a district general as well. Yes, I completely agree. I completely agree. I love the hospital setting, you know, and seeing, as you see, all these different specialities. And these, you know, I mean, at that time, you know, St. Thomas's was very much a, a sort of public school hospital. Um, but it's not anymore at all. But this is, you know, I've got to sound like I'm ancient, but I feel quite, I'm quite old. But um, it was very much then. It was just very different, but very, very welcoming, I have to say. And going up and sort of feeling, you know, you're the first pharmacist in a particular area, which was great, actually. Making a difference to the team and to the patient was really satisfying. Mm. And in terms of the actual pre-reg year, um, what was it like? Was it still the same sort of you go to different rotations every few weeks, whether it's dispensary in the ward? And yeah, what, how, how is it Oh, my today? God, it was... Today, I remember the diary. I didn't even complete it. I mean, it's so much less form, of course, you know. Um, there was rotations, I think, every six weeks, but some of them were great. Like, I don't think there was even a clinical rotation. There was dispensary, of course. Uh, stores, where we just essentially sat around a lot of the day and helped the chief pharmacist do his orders, which he signed every day. And then manufacturing. Manufacturing was huge. You know, we used to manufacture everything then from from the disinfectant that the patients, the patients, the cleaners cleaned the wards to, to every type of oral solution wow. that the patient was taking. So there's a lot of manufacturing. We used to even make those powders in the little, you know, square things. I was terrible at that. I could never get them to do it properly. Anyway, but no, 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 it, it was great. Lots and lots of manufacturing, lots of aseptic uh, dispensing, uh, lots of injectable solutions being made on site, actually. There was a big clean room. I think there still is, but at that time, we manufactured most things, like adrenaline. You know, we used to manufacture adrenaline, one in a thousand, one in 10,000, and you got to learn how to ample seal and all these things that feel like a long time ago. But it was great. It was, it was good fun. It really was good fun. And the thing is, I think the other nice thing, I mean, every pre-reg experience is great, but the nice thing about the big teaching, I suppose, is there's a whole group of you, you know, I think there was about 15 of us pre-registration pharmacists. So you really become the team, don't you? You know, And in fact, there were a couple of them that went into industry. Um, you're right, at that time I wasn't really tempted, but you, you got to know this team and so suddenly you had like 20 friends, 15, 20 friends, and they had a network within pharmacy or the wider things. So it, it was great. It was a really good opportunity. I mean, of course, it had its negative points, but that's life, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, lo I loved the hospital environment and that's one of the reasons why I chose hospital to start my training year because you know you're set up in terms of a community. Yes. And 
I, I, I was at Papworth for my pre-registration year. Oh. So it was me and one other pre-reg. But they helped us to join up with Adam Brooks in terms of the teaching sessions. So we made a lot of friends within Cambridge. And we were meeting up for residentials, which we would stay in Cambridge for an entire week. <clears throat> I think three times within the year. So there was, a, it was a really nice opportunity to, to make friends and, and network within the pharmacy space, especially with other trainees who are going through a similar experience to you. So that was really nice. And I love at Guys and St. Thomas's now, I mean, there's around 20 um, training pharmacists, some of which are there for the full kind of Guys and St. Thomas's experience. Some of them do six months in pediatrics at the Evelina and then six months oh, really? around adults. Yeah. So there's, there's now opportunities for a half-half. And now they've also added in... Um, rotations where you go out to um, GP practices um, and community pharmacies as well. So it's a really, really wonderful opportunity to see so much that pharmacy has to offer so that you can make the best decision about the start of your career and you kickstart it in the right way for yourself. But it's also a really good opportunity to see what secondary care has to offer and also the link between that and primary care yes, as well. So Yes, absolutely. And I think I, it was rather sad that we didn't get that. But that, you know, uh, I did do a few locum shifts once I qualified. But um, we didn't really get that link. But you're absolutely right. They do get a, they get a great training opportunity now. Um, and I think, absolutely. I mean, at that time, I think we were sort of counted as probably the same as you, much more as part of the workforce, you know, and you got a bit of training, but you were there to essentially dispense a lot of the time. But you learned through doing that. Whereas I think now, quite right, the training posts are considered to be so super numerous, you know, and they have much better structured program. But I, I, I can't complain. Thankfully, we didn't have an exam at the end, so that was that made it slightly easier for me. <laughs> what a bonus! I know, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I can't even remember when that came in. Did you have the exam? I did have the exam, yeah. And even now it's January. Um, I know that the trainees start getting a little bit sort of Is anxious because, yeah, because they're halfway through now and mm -hmm. um, they will start kind of really sort of picking up their study time outside of working life so um, they can prepare for the exam. So around sort of January, February time, the anxiety levels start raising because they know 2024 like this is the year I become a pharmacist and I need to step mm -hmm. up in terms of studying outside of work and making sure that I am ready for the exam and the calculations so um it's an exciting journey for them but um yeah some of them do get a little bit nervous at this time of year I think what you're seeing actually sort of you know almost concurs that the exam's important because they study more when you know you've got an exam, and I presume there was some research done at the time. So I think it probably is the right thing to do, but I'm rather glad I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one likes an examination if they don't have to do it. No, I um, know. But yeah, it's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously, a, um, it's a good way to kind of ensure that, um, you know, you're, you're ready um, mm. to kind of step into this professional role. Um, and it sets you apart from people who aren't quite ready and need that further guidance or the extra sort of six months of training to, to make sure that they're 
safe and confident and able to do the job appropriately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess from from your side of the story in terms of your journey, once you had qualified as a pharmacist, what were your thought processes in terms of the role that you wanted to undertake and, and where your vision was as to what you wanted to do with your career? No, gosh, so I'm not sure that I had a full vision at that time, but I knew that I wanted to see patients. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to be a clinical yeah. pharmacist for sure. Um, I think actually when I qualified, there was quite a lot of shortages. We were called basic grade pharmacists at the time. It was even before, what was it called? Whitley, you know, C grades, B grades. Um, and I stayed in London for two years, uh, did some dispensary work and then uh, joined the clinical rotations. At that time, there was it was all the early HIV stuff, you know. And the guys in St. Thomas's had a huge cohort of, it wasn't even guys in St. Thomas's, I should correct myself, it was St. Thomas's at that time, had a huge cohort of IC, um, HIV patients. So I spent a lot of time in the medical wards. They had quite, you know, complicated drug therapies. And a lot of what I was doing was a mixture of clinical review. And actually, I set up their first um, cytotoxic reconstitution. So they were still doing chemo on the wards, you know. And we got a vertical laminar flow cabinet and we started up doing chemotherapy. So my involvement in those patients was due, you know, the um, post sarcoma, of course, the only treatment at that time was chemotherapy. So preparing uh, chemotherapy, um, giving it to, you know, the multidisciplinary team. And in fact, I was veering towards oncology because um, I quite, there was, you know, the, the cytotoxic reconstitution was such a new thing and there was lots of opportunities for pharmacy in it. So I thought I was going to do oncology, I must admit. Um, and I thought I was going to do that for a long time. And actually I went to, after about, I was in Australia for, after I was at St. Thomas's for three years, I got offered a job in Australia. Uh, setting up our cytotoxic reconstitution service in a hospital um, in the western suburbs of Sydney. And that was great fun. I mean, I had a three-year three year sabbatical, I think. I did a lot of work, but a lot of having fun as well. In fact, there used to be a phone in the pharmacy. They used to call it Cathy McKenzie's phone because I used to be on it so much, just talking to friends and having a great time. But anyway, um, after doing that there for another two years, it was just, too depressing. I, I found it. Now it's completely different now, and it's really, really nice to see. So at that time, well, HIV was a, a definitely a death sentence. There was nothing, you know, um, and um, oncology was very much the same. There, there were some things like there was CHOP for Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which had a, quite a good survival rate. But young patients with cancer, which we had a lot of in Australia, died. And don't forget, we didn't have, you know, even some of the extended spectrum antimicrobials at that time. So they die of neutropenic sepsis sometimes. So I decided it was just, I couldn't do a whole career in that. I thought it was going to be too depressing. Little did I know about all the advances that were going to come along the way, you know, and now it would be a sort of clinical try on research sort of super arena, wouldn't it? But at that time, so I came back and um, I came back, went to Edinburgh for a year and that was great fun. I did oncology again then. A hematology oncology again I loved it but don't forget this was central Scotland um, and it was a area of I mean even Edinburgh is a very wealthy area now and it was reasonably wealthy then um, there was a lot of deprivation a lot of young men particularly dying of cancer um, so I decided that I would come back to London 
and I wanted, I don't, I wanted to do intensive care. I knew David Treacher. In fact, he was the clinical director of ICU. And I came back down, I just put into a nutrition with him and started in intensive care. That's quite a long soliloquy of okay. what happened, wasn't it? I jumped I mean, far too far, probably. No, no, I love that. I love it when you tell it, you know, it, it's your thought processes coming out and your, your memory of, of what happened. But I guess I'm intrigued a little bit, first of all, about um, what was it like as a young, I guess you were in your early 20s or mid 20s moving to another country. What were your thought processes then in terms of moving? I guess you moved from Scotland to London, so you knew that you were okay in terms of independence and managing without family members and making new friends and connections. But then what was it like to just... I guess move across the world at that age on your own. Oh, I think for I think for me actually it was the making of me. I do remember uh, a couple of times being somewhere like on a country farm, miles away in Australia, just thinking, you know, this is me. I've got here, and I've got here because people like me, they respect me, um, and I'm here as an individual. I'm not here because I'm either whatever descendant of a person but you're your own independent person gave me an awful lot of confidence I must admit in fact my oldest daughter is at New York at the moment and she's in New York University and I think she's experiencing the same thing that sort of like all right I've got to go out here and I've got to make it and there's no one I can go back to I've got to make it on my own so for me it was great it was a really really positive experience I loved it. I probably did too much partying and not enough scholastic stuff. But, you know, I was in my 20s. I was young. I was single. <laughs> of course. You're supposed yeah. to be enjoying yourself, yeah, for I'm, sure. Not everything is about pharmacy in life. Um, it sometimes feels like that way. But, of course, we, you know, in your 20s, for sure you should be enjoying yourself and, and living your best life because you can. Having a career in pharmacy can at times feel like an uphill battle. The constant demands, the pressures, and finishing each day like your to-do list was just as large as it was in the morning. It may leave you questioning if there's more to your professional journey. It's a question that I confront regularly, but one that drives me to make positive changes towards a better working life. Daily and weekly reflection exercises has really helped me to understand my approach to working life what improvements I can make and what strategies I can use to turn those draining pressures into opportunities for growth. Let's take a moment to reflect on your professional journey and how you approach your goals. What's working well for you and where do you see areas for improvement? I have seen success with time blocking, weekly meetings with my husband to synchronize schedules and task batching. These three strategies alone have been game changers towards my productivity and efficiency. If this resonates with you and you'd like to explore this even deeper, immerse yourself in my new quiz, What's Holding You Back From Achieving Your Professional Goals? You will discover one specific area to focus on and hopefully this will kickstart your journey towards a more rewarding career. It only takes 60 seconds to complete and the link is below. Let me know how you get on. I've only realized now becoming a parent of two how hard it is to do simple things that would be easy for a single person to just make that decision and just go and do it uh, spontaneously. Now there's 
a lot of thought process that goes into everything that we have to do as parents. And I guess I didn't, I knew that would be the case, but you don't realize the reality of that until you have a child and the challenges around childcare or going away for the weekend or even going out for dinner with my husband. Like we don't have that much support in terms of childcare at the moment. My parents are away. Yes. Traveling themselves. So at the moment we're kind of, you know, winter months we take a, a back seat, but as soon as they're back, we rely on them quite a lot more. And they're really but, good. Um, they help you a lot, Anisha. Oh, they're amazing. They're wonderful. And they help me so much in terms of parenting and my kids adore them. So I am very fortunate and grateful that they are playing a huge part in my children's lives and mine. And we do have a lot of fun and they're literally 10 minutes down the road, which makes it even more enjoyable for us to see each other. Yeah, it's really good. And when my grandma was alive, she obviously she died um, a couple of years ago now. We had four generations of, of girls, you know, 10 minutes from each other. And we spent every, we'd see each other every few days. There wouldn't be, you know, two or three days where we wouldn't drive over there and just check in or have a cup of tea or, you know, go for a hug. Um, so, you know, I really um, appreciate those uh, moments in my life and love that I have family so close by. But when they're not around, I do miss my mom a lot. A, for the company, because I get on with her so well, but also um, with the support is so valuable to me and my husband. Um, And for the kids, they love it as well. So um, yeah, we are missing them. And when we lived in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and I had Liliana and she was my first child, um, my initial thoughts of living abroad, um, kind of uh, the reasoning behind moving back home was, was for her and missing you know that family connection so I loved living outside of the UK I lived in the US for uh, nine years as well um, as a teenager my parents moved out there so obviously yeah yeah, so I I went to high school so I didn't do GCSEs or A levels I went to high school in Virginia um, finished high school and then started uh, university or what they call as college so I did four years um, biology and chemistry and then I moved back home to do pharmacy. So I completely resonate with you when you say how much joy and um, kind of how that experience of living abroad made you who you are in some ways yeah. um, and kind of started your journey in pharmacy, but also started that kind of um, confidence and being assertive and being independent. Um you know, a lot of that resonates with me because I've had this international work experience and, and living in other countries, which I've been very kind of fortunate to be able to do. And I'm always encouraging young people to step out their comfort zone and do something different and see things outside of the NHS as well and yes, what we have uh, to offer in the UK. Totally. Right? Totally. I mean, I think and now is... I guess that... Sorry, I was going to say this, the training is much more structured than it was, but it's still possible if you want to do something. And absolutely. Can... Absolutely. I've um I, like last year I did um I I had reached out to an Australian recruitment company and um they're looking to support UK pharmacists to move over to Australia because there's a huge shortage at the moment within the pharmacy profession. Is there really? So we did an episode a podcast Yeah, so we did a podcast episode talking about the recruitment process, how you get licensed, the exam that you have to do and the job kind of opportunities. 
Yes. And there is definitely a lot available for community pharmacists, for hospital pharmacists. They're starting the kind of GP practice pilots, industries and options. So it's really exciting to be a pharmacist now because I think there are a lot of opportunities and it's just a small hurdle of doing a couple of exams. Um, and I think as a, a young early careers pharmacist, because you've recently taken that exam or you're in your clinical diploma or you're in a rotational job and you haven't specialized yet, that exam is going to be so easy for you. But now if I was to take it, obviously I'm in pediatrics and I would definitely have to study for it. I would definitely have to go back and look at the adult content, maybe pick up on some of the pharmacology content um, that I might not be using on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm always saying to the younger generation that this is a perfect opportunity to get that license because it's going to be so easy for you in comparison to when you're 10, 15 years qualified, you've got that family and you've got to think about multiple other people before you can make a decision to move countries. It's not that it's not possible for us. It's just a little bit harder in terms of overcoming obstacles, answering those questions, you know, looking for schools and good districts, you know, all of those kind of things. So it's really nice to hear kind of about that opportunity. And I don't think maybe you haven't thought about it, but isn't it so interesting that you obviously had this experience in the field of cancer at St. Thomas's and a guy's mm. and an organization found you and you're really, you're an early careers pharmacist at this point yes. in your career. And someone found you and said, Hey, I can see what you're doing. I can see your worth. I can see your value. I can see the hard work and the dedication that you're putting in into this specialist area. Come and help us to learn. Now, if you look at that story several years later, it would be unlikely that a band six pharmacist oh, yeah. would be found, Ab right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It would be, uh, it would be really unlikely. Uh, and that's so cool. That, that, that is an amazing part of your, your story. And I, maybe, I don't know if you've thought about that before, but that is really exciting to have been poached for a job to support building a system or a process or, you know, the way that you reconstitute medications in the UK and bringing those skills and that experience to another country, to another organization, to another hospital. And I just think highlighting that is really important in this episode because you talked about it like, yeah, cool. I went to Australia. <laughs> it was just what I did. Well, but it's so huge. Well, I yeah. Well, I, I must admit at the time I approached it with some trepidation. It was not an easy decision to make and I was very nervous about it. And actually when you first get there, it takes a long time. You know, you probably knew that from going to the US. Um but it was an incredible experience. It really did define me. Particularly I went for about a year and a half yeah. and then I came home for four months and I did a locum at St Thomas's actually. Tony West was the chief by then, and he's always remained a good friend and mentor throughout my career. Um, he gave me a look, and then I went back. And when I went back, I never looked back. I had a great year and a bit. And in fact, I did. I got residency. I did think about staying. I think, like you, it was the thought of my mother was a widow by then. The thought of seeing my family a finite number of times was very difficult. You know, and the thought of never knowing it's anyone. It's tough, isn't it? It is tough, isn't it? 
and not and I used to think I don't know anyone here who knows me when I was a child or knows me. You know, and a lot of the people I met, not all of them, but a lot of them had come from, you know, they had come on these £10 assisted ships and things where it really was the new world for them. And actually, my life in, a, in the UK really wasn't that bad. I just I just wanted another adventure, you know. I mean, I, you know, like you had a profession. Um, I knew I could get a job if I came back. So I came back um, and I was going to go back again. But then I met my husband. That's another story. But anyway, no, I did. I did absolutely love it. It, it was a great time, and I still have. But my best friend um, was a girl that I knew before Australia, but we lived together in Australia, and she lives very close to me here um, in Hampshire. And yeah, it was a great time. I have really, really good friends still from that time because it was it was really good fun. And I loved the Australian sense of humour. They were they were really really funny. They're very self-deprecating just like the british so it was good fun and um amazing it's great yeah oh great now um, that sounds like a really you know an enjoyable opportunity and a good memory for you for sure um i guess i'll take you back to something else that i was thinking about with your story and oncology is that you talked about how sort of depressing it was and how challenging it was emotionally to be in front of the type of patients that you were seeing day to day and university and I guess in your early 20s no one prepares you for that side of patient care so agree I mean now I think to myself and I say to my juniors no matter how bad that experience is for you it's worse for the patient and that really helps me so now I will talk to any patient no matter what situation they're on, it's deeply sedated and ventilated. I mean, I might might not try. But, you know, I do talk to patients. But at that time, no one prepares you. And it, I think it's a real feeling of our profession. I hope they're getting better at it. You'll see more early years pharmacists than I do. I really hope they're getting better at it. Cause it's I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if they are. I, I think obviously because in the last couple of years, the idea of mental health in general has become a big part of our lives Yes, outside of pharmacy. Um, so people's awareness of anxiety or emotional health, your mental health, what might impact you that's different to somebody else and how we are all different and how we will all experience a different emotion depending on the situation and how we navigate through that is 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 really important so i think that awareness exists but i wouldn't say that there are any processes or specific systems to support you and especially for early careers pharmacists because when you uh, look at students, so I, I'm obviously lecturing at King's College London. Yes. A lot of our students are going into hospital environments. We make it very clear to the supervisors before these students arrive, like, don't forget, remind yourself when you're with these students that these students have never or very unlikely have ever been exposed to someone who's this unwell. Yes. So when they see and unwell patients. At that point, they're not even speaking to the patient or supporting them on their journey. In their first year, they've got a half day at Geisens St. Thomas's Hospital to just see what pharmacy professionals do. And because we are so um, used to going on to a ward and seeing sick people, and it's just part and parcel of our journey, 
And in pediatrics, you know, you're seeing sick children. And parents. When you have students, you have to remember, you know, that they they don't have this experience yet. But I wouldn't say that we have understood how this impacts students and support them on that journey yet. And the reason why I say that as well is because I work in palliative care in PEDS. So when I started working in palliative care, I have a lovely team of women. Um, We're we're an all-female team by chance. And when I went to a hospice for the first time, and watched a compassionate extubation as part of my IP prescribing course. I wanted to follow the patient journey from hospital to the hospice and to the end of life. Um, Being part of that experience was completely new um, for me and to see the parents and experience what their journey was like was really challenging. And in that moment there, or after that, experience happened we had a debrief and actually my team said do you want a debrief would you like to have a discussion about what you've been through and what you've seen and what you've experienced because they're well aware that actually I was new to seeing this and how it would impact me and they wanted to support my journey but that was just an individual people being kind and individual people understanding who I am and they know that like I'm a new parent um And at that time I went there, I was pregnant with my second child. So of course, like they were just concerned that, hey, are your emotions heightened? Do we need to support you? And though I was fine, um, I can truly appreciate where you're coming from with regards to your journey and feeling like you're surrounded by a lot of um, sort of negativity and depressing situations and a lot of sadness and how that can impact your day to day life. Um, And it's just something I thought would be important for us to raise on the podcast because um, it is tough to be a healthcare professional. You're seeing a lot and to manage those emotions can be quite difficult. Yes, absolutely. I must admit, I mean, it doesn't uh, very often get to me anymore. Usually now, and I say to my juniors when I go into the ICU, I just think of what I can, what can I do to make the situation a bit better for the family or for the patient or for the health professional? But there are times, I mean, round about Christmas this time, our neuro ICU had a lot of trauma patients and that was very difficult. I did get quite emotional. That, that's unusual for me, it has to be said. But there are times when it is tough. And I think we as a profession are not good at talking about it. Perhaps it's something we can work on together, you know, but it is something we should. Get. No, this is this is really this is really interesting um, because it hasn't really come up in conversation for me before but I do get a lot of people yes um ask I get a lot of people asking me why I've chosen palliative care especially in pediatrics as well and how I do it as a parent and how I don't get impacted emotionally of course I get impacted emotionally it's really tough to see what these parents are going through yes but as a professional and as a pharmacist I really pride myself and put myself in a position where all I want to do is help them have a better experience or journey, or I see it from the point of view as I'm doing everything I can to improve the quality of life of that child or that baby whilst they're still with us. Yes. And if I've done that 
and I've supported that family as much as I can with regards to administering medicines or understanding why they would choose them or identifying mm. symptoms where they might need to use them at home or even something as simple as helping them to register their child for their GP practice so they can get repeat medications at home in case that their child does survive for several weeks or months where they need a GP to support them. I've done my job. And if I've done my job, then I feel that reward and I feel that happiness. And even though it's a sad situation, I feel so, yeah, I've done my best. And I feel like I've definitely given that family a good experience of a hospital environment and what their child is going through. And I've supported them on that journey. And, and that's what keeps me going. Yes, same with same with me in those situations. I must admit, I yeah, very similar. Although, I mean, palliative care children is, I can imagine, be particularly challenging. But you can, it's not dissociate yourself from the setting because you feel the emotions, but you almost put yourself in the. It's almost like you're sort of slightly in the third person, but you're saying, "What can I do to make this situation better for you?" This is not my family, but this is what I'm going to do to give to your family. Mm. So really very rewarding. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I do love it. And I think that the community within the palliative care specialty is lovely. No. Everyone's very active in terms of trying to support the patient or improving the patient journey or looking at how we can improve guidelines or formulary or unlicensed medicines in order to, yeah, improve patient care so i do love that aspect of it that i and even at the conferences be, it's so nice i bet it's so it nice. i bet i bet they're <laughs> lovely in fact i work with two palliative care consultants one i'm doing research with and the other one i'm doing we're writing a paper together and they're lovely really lovely people actually and the they're, they're we're a good pact really aren't we pharmacy and palliative care i mean we're all sort of on the same team really there's a lot of symptom control isn't there a lot of things yeah. in fact i learn a lot from them uh, I think they're very good about putting things into context. You know, I think we are naturally, as a profession, cautious. Uh, but sometimes we can be a bit overcautious, and I think they put it into clinical context a lot, which is very helpful. Yeah. So let me take you back to um, going into critical care. Yes. Like this is a big part of your journey as a pharmacist, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people who are watching or listening to this episode really want us to dive into that topic. So I guess tell us a little bit about where it started in terms of uh, that first job that you had in critical care and how things developed for you as a pharmacist. So my first job was, funny enough, chaos surprise at, guys, at St. Thomas's. It was still St. Thomas's. I say that because it did merge quite soon after that. And it was on Mead Ward. And Mead at that time um, was the first ICU in the UK. It was a very, very special place. It was run by a professor called Ron Bradley, who died recently, actually. He got a big obituary in the BMG and things. And another uh, doctor called David Treacher, who is a very good friend of mine. And so I was employed, and at that time, there weren't really funded posts. You know, there was, in any speciality, I mean, there might have been the odd one. I think there was a bit of, you know, but not really within clinical specialities. So I um, was given the post for six months, and they said, save your salary, and then we'll give you a job. So um, I dutifully did. Um, in fact, I wrote it up, presented it at Glasgow, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Um, and 
I think I, I saved my salary by switching lots of patients from um, keflosporins to aminoglycosides. And you still use a lot of aminoglycosides at Geyser Thomas's. And a lot of patients from Diprovan, um, at the time, which was very expensive, that was the old propofol, to midazolam. And I, I actually always say I, I spent six months saving my salary and I spent the next seven years proving myself wrong because a lot of the patients got over-sedated with midazolam. There wasn't really that much data on the pharmacokinetics at the time. Um, and we switched them and a lot of patients got over-sedated and they didn't wake up. Um, you know, ICU patients are adults are coming with quite a lot of comorbidities and they might have one or two opportunities to be ventilated, to be extubated and we over-sedated them. So I, I always approach drug costs now with a little bit of caution. I mean, I got my publication out of it, of course. I guess that started that um, interest in getting published. But I really realised then um, in doing that in that uh, was one of the things that made me realise that I'm not going to be the clinical pharmacist that um, stays here for a little while, right? And then the consultant always knows more than me in, in the medication field. You know, I'm not going to know the same, but airways. I'm going to be the clinical pharmacist that stays here and becomes an expert. And there was another situation where I first started. And I remember David said to me, oh, Kathy, um, what do you think about atricurium? And I kind of thought, what on earth is atricurium? Oh, I don't know, even know where that is. And I went, I, I still remember going out and getting out of the fridge and thinking, I'm never having this situation again in my career where a consultant knows more about medication than I do in intensive care. So I made a vow. I mean, I, I, mean, I haven't kept up with it, but more or less I have that they're not going to, the med, I'm not having the medics know more about, about, with me about the drugs. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not always the case, but I do still charge myself with it that they shouldn't, you know, we're the pharmacists. We're the medication experts. We should know as much, if not more than them, and we should support them in deciding. So those two things, and I, I just, I think it was a bit like children's, but I just love the integration of science. There was a lot of, there still was a lot of science, like, you know, science of acid-base balance or working at a drug's chemical structure and whether it was protein-bound, whether, whether established whether it being removed by renal replacement therapy. It was all so scientific based that I loved that. I really loved it. And so I, I knew I knew quite early on that I found my home. Unfortunately, I did save my salary. I saved £10,000 a month. I remember that. And they gave me a job. I think I was the first funded post in the UK at the time. So that's quite some time ago. No way. Yeah, I think I was. That is very I was cool. the first funded post. Although, um, <laughs> yeah, I think there was others. I think that. Mark Borthwick, he came along quite soon after me, or at the same time. But anyway, there we are. That, but I did spend the next. Mark seven Borthwick years. was. Yes. Mark Borthwick was uh, one of my role models when I worked in Oxford as a um, resident pharmacist, and I'm sure he's still there. Oh, he is still but there. We, uh, everybody, there. yeah. He's he's yeah, he's he's incredible, and. He is. I'm oh. always trying to get him to come onto this podcast, but um, I don't know if he's a little bit shy to share his story. Um, but I will try to convince him again because um, he is such a fabulous human being, a wonderful parent, and a great mentor. Someone who always encouraged you and guided you, and always, always, always had time for you. You were that resident who you know, needed to just crack on, but he always had time to educate you. And I won't forget my experience of 
doing my IC rotation for the first time with with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Marcus. It was a great journey. He's a great friend. We've known each other for years. I, I suppose our children have grown up together. But, you know, the thing about Mark that he's just very, not only is he all these things, but incredibly knowledgeable, clever, uh, kind, but he's also a, a really good politician. He's a much better politician than me. I throw my toys at my pram far too often, but he really is astute. I think actually if he didn't love critical care quite as much as he did, he'd be a chief exec because he's got that, you know, that, um, or a real leader. But actually he's found his niche and he's, he's fantastic. When we finish, I'll message him and I'll tell him if I've done it, he has to do it because we're in the process <laughs> of writing something together. So there we go. <laughs> you know, he's great. Yeah. He's Amazing. Great. I love that. Yeah, no, he is. And it's so lovely that like, you know, even in the pharmacy profession, it's such a small, there's so many of us, but it's such a small network. Like here I'm talking about what feels like could be a random pharmacist who also does critical care, but because within each specialty, people are building such amazing communities that you're collaborating and you're yeah. being innovative, you're doing research together and you're becoming friends, which is is really nice to obviously hear, um, knowing that you're obviously both in the, the same specialist area. And I love the, the story of you starting your critical care journey. And even when you talk, that spark is coming alive. You, you love the, the science and the pharmacology and, you know, wanting to be that expert in medicines and being the person that people come to for support and guidance and help with regards to choice or, you know, looking at something that might be unlicensed or finance or whatever it might be in terms of the patient journey. And I know that that is the case within a lot of specialist areas, but what also comes to my mind as a clinical pharmacist myself is that for young people now, there is so much else that we have to do in our day-to-day -day job that sometimes it's so challenging for them to f get to the point where they feel like they can be that expert because you have to be so well-rounded now. You've got to be a good yeah. leader. Yeah. You've got to be good in IT. You've got to understand finance. You've got to educate other people as part of your role as well as see 50 patients a day. Yes, I and agree. Yeah. So, you know, the drug histories, the the medicines reconciliation, the interactions, the the TTOs. What what was it like for you when you were working? Did you have all of these like similar issues or was it different? Um I don't think there was as much challenges. I don't think there was as much extra things that you had to do. Do you know what I mean? But I think what there wasn't was so I did the certificate, the postgraduate certificate in pharmacy practice before I left. Uh, and then I missed out on the diploma, of course, because I was in Australia having fun. Um, but there wasn't the same uh, structured learning at all. So if you wanted to learn, you had to do it off your own back. And I did teach myself a lot of intensive care medicine in the early days. Just got the Oxford textbook of medicine out and just read. Um, okay. But there, and I think that was that was I mean I that was probably hard, but at the time you don't know it's hard, do you? You just think that's what you've got to do. I think probably a bit like mm. I've always had that ability to just look things up. You know, I'm not having anybody someone else tell me the answer. I'd rather look at it myself. So 
Um, and that time it was just looking at textbooks. But, there were, you know, there was tons around. And actually the unit at that time was, you know, we'd got some really bright medics in doing their, it was one of those called the Golden Circuit in London at the time. So we've got some really fa- fantastic medics in and really great nurses. It was an amazing unit. I mean, people stayed there the whole career. I spent much of my career there, actually. But it was a, it was a lovely place to work. And I learned so much. They were always learning on war trends. And there was grand rounds and there was this and there was that. But, you know, I didn't want to be in the, dis- I mean, nothing wrong with the dispensary, don't get me wrong. I just didn't want to do just that. You know, I wanted to do more. Yeah, but absolutely. I, you know, so there we are. Yeah. And you want to dive deep, you yes, know, into a specific yes, area, I, I you know. I absolutely want to dive deep. I want to understand. I want to understand what's going on with the patients. Um, and now it's, you know, I want to understand the evidence and how the evidence applies to that patient. At that time, there was a little bit of evidence-based medicine. I mean, of course there was evidence, but it wasn't, I think it sort of came around then, didn't it, to be the be and end-all. But it started then, you know, at that time. Mm. So back then, when you were in this role, mm. um, I guess when you look at your research journey. Yes. Um, what sparked your interest in getting that first publication? And then how did things kind of evolve from there? Um, so I think part of it, and I can't, shouldn't really attribute it to part of it was, I met my husband on the ICU and he already had a PhD. I think he had a PhD in MSc. He always had more qualifications earlier. Not that I'm at all competitive, not. And I think he said to me, he said, you know, you, you just be partying your old 20s. And I thought, not be to Australia. I had a great time. Anyway, so and then I got the job, and they said to me, "You've got to get a higher degree," um, because I'd not done my diploma. And so I thought, "Well, I'm not going to do a master's or diploma. I'm going to do a PhD." And I really wanted. I, I really always like uh, probing clinical questions. You know, having something you see clinically, and how can I solve that? And the big thing at that time was solving this over-sedation of midazolam because the textbook said it didn't accumulate in renal failure, but we kept on seeing it. Um, and so I thought, right, I'm going to do a PhD and I'm going to apply to the charity, Guys and Thomas's charity, to try and get some funding. And at that time, they'd never had a non... I don't think they've ever had a non-medic reply, apply, but I just thought, well, don't ask, don't get, you know. I always say that to my juniors, and I'm probably a bit like yourself. So I applied to the charity and I got funding I was the first non-medical dentist to get funding to do my PhD. And then I started, and poor old, uh, started in 1998. I think I published my first paper in 1996. That was uh, one about Theophylline. I had quite a few abstracts before then. I already got into the sort of submitting your findings, you know, to, to, a, to a conference. And I think bef- even before I started my PhD, I realized that doing research, and I still say this, is makes you a better clinical pharmacist understanding the evidence because if you write a paper uh you know you write in a paper in the introduction you put about the literature you remember what you write in the introduction you know um and then you do a bit of science in the rest of it and so it always makes you a better clinical pharmacist and i really knew that and so i started my phd and then i started in 1998 i had my kids i had Two during it, and my third one, I was 37 weeks pregnant. I'm sure that's why they gave me it when I did my viral. Um, I got my PhD afterwards and then had a bit of a break. But I published the papers in my PhD just afterwards. And I love, I think it gives you a bit of a dopamine hit, doesn't it? 
I still get a joy out of publishing all those years later because it's hard. And I say that to pharmacists, it's really hard work. Uh, and pharmacy technicians, I'd love to get some more technicians into research. It's hard work. And it's harder than anything else you do because you've got to go through the peer review and you've got to reply to the peer. Therefore, it's really satisfying. I'm sure, you know, you agree the same thing. So that was it, it, it's, it's definitely It's definitely tough. And I think mm. because there are so many competing, competing, competing responsibilities as a pharmacist, that sometimes research, because you don't necessarily know how to do it from the beginning, especially as a sort of junior pharmacist. Yes. yes. It becomes a barrier or it becomes something that you avoid because it yes. feels like it's a little bit hard. And I would say that when you, when you work in a, a, a hospital pharmacy, there are obviously lots of other senior pharmacists who might be doing that research, which... You, you see that happening, but you don't necessarily join them on that journey. Or maybe you're, for some of the younger generation, they're a little bit afraid to ask questions or get involved or say, how can I support you? I want to get involved. This is something that um, I don't have much experience with, but I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yes, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite hard. And when you look at even sort of um, RPS, there's been some focus on supporting pharmacists now to get more involved with research. So they've identified that it is a barrier or a challenge or an obstacle that people are struggling to kind of break through. So I'm hoping that we see a lot more of it. And I think at Guy's and St. Thomas's, you know, people are definitely enjoying research people are getting involved but that's not the case everywhere in a big teaching hospital it's kind of an expectation to some extent so yes I people agree. are doing it but we still struggle with it yeah we still we struggle do, we do struggle um and in fact case casey you know over kings i think is great for pharmacy for research um it's one of the best places probably in the uk kch and guys and thomas's are both great places because they support it I think the thing is, um, so I, I guess maybe I've always compared myself to the medics, perhaps wrongly, and I've always thought, well, if they can do it, I'm going to be able to do it. Um, and my, I, remember, I remember, I think, asking my husband at some point, you know, when you get a registrar, what do they do? And he said, oh, well, they write up, like, you know, paper. They'll do a review of six or ten patients and then they'll write it up. And I'm thinking, well, how come they do it and we don't do it? And I think a lot of it is just that block if you think you can't but it definitely has to uh come high enough priority in your day in terms of if you want to publish uh, you've got to go up in the morning and say to yourself i want to i've got to write that paper i've got to write that paper um uh, today uh, we've got a paper that might get accepted in jama which would be amazing it's just a little letter you know it probably won't it's still under review so it shouldn't say anymore but anyway um, I get up first and do that because that's the hardest thing of the day. So you do that first. And so I think it's getting, partly getting into a regime and partly it's just opportunity. It's much harder for pharmacists because there's not the career structure there. Mm. Um, I think probably in some ways I was lucky in that the, the career structure wasn't so formed. And so I just thought I want to do a PhD and I'll just go and do it, you know. 
Whereas now, so I did my PhD, then I did prescribing. Whereas at the moment, it's kind of like, you know, qualify, get your diploma, get your certificate, get a master's perhaps, then do prescribing. I actually think when, when prescribing comes out as an undergraduate, I think there might be more pharmacists do PhDs. Um, not that you don't need a PhD to do research, don't get me wrong. Absolutely not. But I think if you're going to make a career out of it, um, you're always going to come up against people who do have PhDs. So it's going to be more hard. It's going to be harder for you. It doesn't mean you can't do it. And the other thing about research is you have to be prepared. I get, I get told off for saying this, but you have to be prepared to do your, give your own time. Um, not yeah, when you like yeah. write one paper, but if you want to write 10 papers, you've got to give your own time, you know, if you want to career out of it. But then yeah. it can become a hobby, you know. Mm. I, when I was working at the Evelina, yes, and I identified that publications and research was one of my um, weaknesses. Yes. I was working in infectious diseases at that time, helping to support a maternity um, leave contract. Yes. And the ID team were incredible and the medics themselves were doing a lot of publications. And at that point I just said, oh, can I help? You know, can I support you? And that was a great stepping stone. Find a friend who's already doing it and knows what they're doing. And Kevin Kevin Leavers, Kevin Meesters, who was the doctor that I worked with, He um, had recently finished his PhD and when he talked about research, when he talked about publications, he had so much enthusiasm and motivation and passion. So I was like, oh, I've got to hop onto this because this person will be happy to support me. And if I can't get it from pharmacy or someone within the Evelina themselves, then it's okay to go outside. It doesn't really matter as long as you get started on that journey. And then I that's Set myself a goal so of, you know, one publication with someone else every year. If you can do that, that you're still yeah. making strides, right? Yeah, uh, that's exactly you know, what it, I it, Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. It, it, and the same thing I see, you know, if there's no one in pharmacy, just put your hand up and say to the medical professor, because they love, you don't get paid more for, you know, academic genius. We might a little bit, but. So they love to talk about their research, you know, so they never say no. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. That's exactly the right way to do it. It's just to say, I'd like to be part of it. What can I do to help? Uh, and there's always something you can do. A pharmacist. And there's and a lot of the time, it's drug-focused. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you and, can get data that and, they cannot get their hands on. And they love having the support of a different healthcare professional, especially from pharmacy, because they do see you as the medicines expert. Yes, they do. And they know that your opinion or your knowledge or your experience or your skill will bring some value to the work that they're also doing. So they really enjoy working alongside you, as well as the fact that you're hoping that they give you the support and the guidance that you need as well on your journey. So it's a nice little kind of two-way friendship there yes yeah. and a great way to start collaborating developing a network as well within the kind of hospital that you work at I also think that if you're if you're a pharmacist or a student or a trainee pharmacist listening or watching this episode that there are other ways for you to collaborate when it comes to research opportunities and that's becoming a part of a group yes. um 
like for you in critical care, there's, you know, a, a, a great network um, so that you can develop those friendships, join webinars. There are forums like UKCPA is a great opportunity for a critical care pharmacist to join a group of like-minded specialist pharmacists. So if you don't necessarily want to work with medics to begin with and you really want to start in the pharmacy space, then join groups where there are lots of pharmacists who are doing exciting, inspiring, motivating things. Um, and that kind of brings us to the point of you and, and kind of what your involvement has been with um, groups on a national scale within pharmacy. Oh, gosh. Well, that's quite, that's quite a big question, isn't it? So I guess, um, uh, so when did it start? About 1998, I think it was a wee while ago. That's a little while ago. Uh, that time, just later than that, Comprehensive Critical Care came out. And that was a big publication in the Department of Health essentially saying that, you know, critical care should be without walls. Uh, and our experience uh, looking after acutely ill patients should be uh, disseminated over the healthcare system. And that was where the concept of the different levels of critical care came out as well. The comprehensive critical care was very medic and nurse-led. But actually, you know, at the end of the publication, he said, we need another group to look at allied health professions and healthcare scientists. So they established a group called the Allied Health Professional Healthcare Scientists. And I was invited as one of the pharmacists. It was myself and John Dade. And um, this was quite, it was quite an innovative group. It wasn't me, it was a woman. I can't remember the name of the woman who read it. Something. Anyway, she was really inspirational. She was a physio by background. And essentially what we did is we drew up minimal staffing um, criteria for each profession. And that was the first, John Dade and I, he led the publication of the first staffing documents for pharmacists in critical care. And then at the same time, um, I joined the UK CPA critical care group. That was just forming. It was a very, very early days. Um, and myself, Mark Tomlin, Mark Borthwick, um, sort of had an idea, even in those early days about, you know, the big hospitals having these critical care pharmacists that have opportunity and we should be sharing what we do across the critical care community and reaching out to 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 every hospital. And I chaired the critical care group actually, I think when we just formed it actually. Um for a year and a half, I think I was struggling having my third child at work when I gave up to the incredible Mark Borthwick, who did a much better job than me. Uh, you know, he was, but actually, we did a lot of work on, uh, published a lot of stuff on describing competencies for critical care pharmacists. And a lot of the stuff we were trying to see then was like, they we're not all the same. Uh, you know, there are very senior pharmacists, there are middle grade pharmacists, and there are junior pharmacists. And you won't get the trained product, give us time and patience. And actually, actually, that fed into the sort of competencies for different areas. Um, and really, I mean, the HP group really fed into, I've always loved multi-professional working. You know, you learn so much from other professions, don't you? Fed into that. And at the same time, being a voice for ICU pharmacy and encouraging people to get involved. Um, and I think our work actually, uh, that we started, that Mark took on and led, Mark Borthwick, really got started. I mean, I can't, but I couldn't take the credit to where they are today, whereas every ICU now has a pharmacist. His last publication, Workforce, said 99.9% .9 of ICUs have an ICU pharmacist in the UK, which is fantastic. 
And now I'm leading um, a similar bit of work, which is even more challenging in some ways for the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Um, ICU pharmacy is not as prevalent in Europe, um, but the intensivist and the rest of the team recognise the expertise. So we've just formed a group look, uh, hoping to define standards. In fact, we just had a big publication, Intensive Care Medicine, talking about the 10 reasons why you should have a, an ICU pharmacist. So that's a that's a really exciting thing to do. I think I think with those things is you've got to use your professional leverage, but you can't want to be the other profession. You know, you can't. Do you know what I mean? You have to be your voice within the team, and I think that's probably what myself and a number of other people have done together. You know, we've always been let's be the voice in the team, um, and a lot of the first consultant pharmacists. It was Mark Tomlin. He was the first, wasn't he? Consultant for growing critical care. You know, so. We're very lucky to have that community. And it's luck, very lucky to be a, one of the early lights in it. I think there are other people that are the leading lights then, but to be part of it at the beginning was really special. It's it really nice. Absolutely. Very lucky. And it just, it, it highlights as well how much opportunity there is within pharmacy as a profession. So if you find a specialty that you love, uh, you're looking at the clinical side in front of the patient on the ward, the multidisciplinary side, you're looking at research, you're looking at education. And when you look at these groups, you, you love, I love the idea of that collaboration piece and the network and making friendships with people who are on a similar journey, because you really do motivate each other yes. and engage with each other and learn from each other and help as well. Like, oh, we tried this, you know, in, in our ICU and and you really kind of get an idea of what's happening on a national scale. And, and that's really exciting. There's so many great skills that we need to have or we will learn within these roles. And, and that kind of highlights as well that now I think that there's so much more structure in terms of what is expected of you as a pharmacist. So if you look at the RPS sort of advanced pharmacy framework, it really guides you to understand the basics in terms of the foundation that you need to start with and how you develop it. Mm. And you're obviously building this portfolio, but that kind of stuff didn't exist when you were an early careers pharmacist no. and you had to just figure it out on your own. So that is incredible in terms of um, your personality and your drive and your determination and thinking outside the box as well and looking at the kind of innovation piece and saying, well, actually, we're missing this link, or I don't understand why this drug is causing a certain side effect, and I'm yeah. going to figure it out. And then launching yourself into a PhD whilst you have, you know, two children and then undergoing a pregnancy. I mean, these are just incredible and inspiring yeah. elements of your journey. And I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to um, to capture that information on audio and video for people to hear because, you know, it's really nice to showcase what pharmacists can do. And part of this podcast and building pharmacist diaries is to showcase this profession because I feel like we do not advocate for what we do more than yeah, we like agree. than we should. Yes, I agree. And, you know, this episode showcases that is that you can achieve anything that you want if you put your mind to it. You can really yeah. overcome anxieties, hurdles, obstacles, you can face challenges and fix them and it can be done. And, and, and you're a great kind of person to have showcased that. So 
you know, this is, you know, I really appreciate your time, Catherine. No, you've got a lot going on. It's very um, nice of you to, and to, to ask me. It's been an honor to be here, actually. It really has. Yeah. And there's so much more to come in terms of your journey, your research, the involvement that you have with within critical care. And I've been following you recently on LinkedIn and you've been obviously posting a lot about um, kind of what's happening with your your research and things. So I, I kind of look forward to seeing what else 2024 brings. And actually, before I close the episode, what have you got planned for 2024 in terms of your pharmacy specific goals? Oh, gosh, that's a big question, isn't it? So E, and I say this to all um, my friends, I'm not going to take on, I'm going to start saying no, right? That's a personal goal. I get too enthusiastic and take on far too much. And I want to, um, so last year was all about, I think, uh, sort of period of ill health. And I think since I come back, I have worked quite hard. So last year was a bit about, uh, it was all about publishing and publishing in as high impact journals as I could. So I got there, uh, I had two intensive care medicine publications. In fact, one was this year. So that was great, really achievement. Not just mine, it's always a team. So this year is about getting some funding, some research funding. Uh, and then I want to be, uh, you know, I want to be a chief investigator. I want to do my own research. I want to design and deliver my own research because I think pharmacy needs that. It needs its own, um, you know, leaders to encourage the next generation of pharmacy researchers because. That's, I think, you know, it's only having our own researchers that people, pharmacists believe, because once you get into it, I've got three pre-doctoral fellow pharmacists uh, who are an inspiration every time I speak to them and they can do it. All the barriers are just in your head. You can do it. You just got to work hard and, and be patient. So, yes, get some funding, get lots of funding, lead my own research. And who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Lots of other stuff. Continue critical illness and work hard. Watch the space, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your your time. And I'm so glad that we've um, had an opportunity to get to know each other and learn more about your career journey. And I wish you all the best for 2024 because this episode will come out um, in the end of January. So, um, you know, we've got multiple months uh, to enjoy and see what happens in Catherine's space and in, in critical care. Thank you so much, Anisha. And you're an absolute inspiration as well. I did happen to know you were women to watch oh, this year. <laughs> so lovely to meet you. And good I luck. did get that, yeah. Yes, I did see that. Yeah, fact, thank I you might, so much. I might have been on the panel and you were inspirational. You really were. It was such oh, an awesome thing to read that panel I it really felt that pharmacy was in safe hands because you were all oh, do so much achieve so much so finish on that note thank you yeah thank you so, so much. much that's a great way to end our podcast on yeah, a positive absolutely. note yeah absolutely